Welcome to Let It Low Pit at Large. I'm Let It Low Pit. In his latest book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, innovation expert Alec Ross argues that our social contract has broken and that the roles of business, labor, government, and foreign countries need to be rethought. It's published by Henry Holt and Alec Ross, the distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School, joins us now to discuss his proposals for a new social contract that would restore that balance. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. You were the senior advisor for innovation for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton during the Obama administration. Were any of the problems you discuss in this book being addressed at that time? You know, not at grand scale. You know, if I were to be, I, I worked for Barack Obama for six years, and I have a very, very high opinion of him. But one of the shortcomings of his administration, and there were lots of reasons for it, some of which the Obama administration was culpable for, some of which it wasn't, was the changes were incremental at a time where I think we needed non-incremental changes to reverse some of the massive, massive economic trends that were reshaping America. So I think Obama had the best of intentions and he tried to do some things. But ultimately, instead of it being sort of a new Roosevelt term, it was more like a third Clinton term. You write that the Social contract is one of the most basic features of human civilization. In theory, what, what is the social contract? You know, it's that which defines and limits the responsibilities, the obligations between the governing, the governed, and business. And, and would you know, that apply ex- to every country or? Uh, it, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it, look, it's existed ever since, you know, humans on two feet decided that it, they would be safer uh, from saber toothed tigers if they <laughs> banded together instead of trying to make it on their own in the world. And so it's sort of a living document. It's 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 a, an equilibrium that we seek to achieve in our relationship with each other. And every now and then, about every 100 years, 150 years or so, it needs to be substantially rewritten as the larger dynamics in the economy and in the world change. Because uh, you say the social contract functions best when the relationship between government citizens and private companies are in balance, but that that balance has been thrown way off. I mean, let's think about just the United States for a moment. I mean, this book was written by an American, but it's really not an American book. I mean, there are 196 countries on planet Earth, and I try to give a bit of a global sweep of what's happening around the world. But let's talk about the U.S. for a moment. Over the last 30 years, the top 1% have grown $21 trillion richer, while the bottom 50% have grown $900 billion poorer, and the middle class is stagnated. This trend is playing out across much of the Western world while the developing world is watching and taking notes. You know, just one more, if I could give you some more numbers, just because I think they're insane. If the level of inequality in the United States had stayed at a constant level over the last 40 years, so going back to the 1980s, instead of widening to its current Mad Max-like state, it would have meant that 50 trillion, trillion with a T, $50 trillion would have gone to workers earning below the 90th percentile. That is an additional $1,100 every month for every single worker. So with that kind of an imbalance, 
I think the kind of shared prosperity we had after the Second World War into the 1980s has really stopped. What happened in the 1980s that changed everything? The, the fundamental nature of capitalism in the United States changed. We went from practicing what could euphemistically be called stakeholder capitalism, meaning that, you know, as a company grew and, and became profitable, those profits were widely shared by shareholders, by management, by employees, reinvested in the community, to uh, shareholder capitalism, the doctrine espoused by Milton Friedman and the University of Chicago economists, who basically argued that there is one job and one job only of business, and that is to maximize returns to shareholders. This is why we saw this is why we saw headquarters move out of every medium and medium and larger sized town all across the United States and move into tax optimized locations. This is why we saw share buybacks instead of reinvestments in in our companies. I mean, let's think for just a moment about the airlines. You know, the United States just because of COVID did massive bailouts of both Boeing and of the airlines. But it's not because neither Boeing nor the airlines were unprofitable. Over the previous decade, the airlines earned $49 billion, but $47 billion went to stock buybacks because that would return that would maximize the return to shareholders. For Boeing, $48 billion of its $53 billion in free cash flow went into stock buybacks. And so what that means is that instead of uh, raising salaries or builder, building safer planes or investing in our communities. They're just fluffing up the stock prices. So since the 1980s, we've gone from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. You say that uh, the rights and responsibilities of individuals need to be rebalanced with those of states and corporations because globalization, deregulation, and the climate crisis have changed the state of the world, and things are only getting worse as inequality grows? Well, first, let me be clear. I'm an optimist. I mean, the raging 2020s is actually an optimistic book. I think that only optimists change the world. And I think that raging is an optimistic word. Forgive me for asking about that. No, no. What it means is that raging has a dual connotation. It can be raging as in anger, or it can be raging like the connotation of my of my, that my 18-year-old son thinks of it, like a great party at midnight, mm-hmm. sort of like the roaring 20s. It can, be, it can be good or it can bad, be bad. But what I do believe is that whether the future looks more like Star Trek or more like Mad Max depends on the choices that we make over these next few years. And while I am optimistic, things are trending, things are trending quite negatively right now. Isn't the, the role of unions to maintain the balance? What's been happening there? Yeah, I mean, I got I to gotta tell you, this is something that I write about pretty extensively and, and it's something that's very personal for me. You know, when I, I grew up in the coal-filled hills of West Virginia and worked as a, a midnight janitor and on a beer truck. And when I was growing up in West Virginia, I saw the power and importance of unions. You know, working on the beer truck, I saw that, those Teamsters work hard, worked hard, and they were paid well for it. But unfortunately, that in the United States has proven the exception in recent years. Membership in unions has plummeted. The power of unions has plummeted. 
uh, unions have largely been defensive over the last 40 years in the United States and the United Kingdom. But there are other outstanding models for how unions uh, can work within capitalism and make sure that the, the spoils of capitalism are broadly shared. I sit on the board of a company in Switzerland, big publicly traded company, and we have something called a work council, which is sort of like an internal union. And when COVID hit, we, like every other company, did our analysis of what it was going to mean to us. And, you know, the MBAs come back and tell us how many people we need to fire. But because we had a, a very positive and productive relationship with our union, we, we got into a dialogue with them. And they came back with the data that said, you know what, instead of firing these people, how about everybody, including, oh, by the way, the board of directors and the senior executives, take a 5% cut, uh, 5% pay cut and then let's see where we are in six months. And sure enough, they got their employees to agree to it. We agreed to it. Six months later, we brought everything back to normal without having fired anybody. And so the, the union models of co-determination, where, where unions oftentimes actually have seats on the boards of directors of companies in Central and Northern Europe, is a heck of a lot more productive than it is in the U.S., I mean, in Sweden, for example, which has a very dynamic economy, the prime minister is actually a union welder. So <laughs> unions can play a positive, productive role. But in the United States, it's too there. It's defense. It's no offense. And so I feel like the union movement in the United States, with a few exceptions, is mostly broken. Now, why has that happened? Because the unions... Uh, have been a major part of the development of the United States in the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, look, if it weren't for unions, we wouldn't have weekends. You know, the norm for the work week went from six days to five days because of unions. The concept of a minimum wage, we can thank unions for it. The institutionalization of pensions, we can thank our unions for it. But I think a couple things hit. First of all, our public sector unions, meaning those representing government employees like teachers and police officers, have really, I think, gone afoul of their mission. I was a, I was a public school teacher in Baltimore. Um, I was a member of the Baltimore Teachers Union. And instead of fighting for better work conditions or higher wages for teachers, what they did is they, perf they protected the lowest performing teachers. You know, this is, this is going to be really crude, but I'm just going to say it. If there were teachers who were uh, doing drugs or who were in sexual relationships with their students, these are people who the unions would protect instead of fighting for better conditions. Similarly, with our police unions, a lot of what we see with our police unions right now is instead of fighting for better conditions for police officers, they are protecting uh, police officers who are really in the bottom 10 percent of performance and sort of can do no wrong. And then the last thing on unionization is I would simply say is they're failing to anticipate the changes in the economy and in work and to pivot toward and anticipate how work and skills are developing. They're just trying to defend the world as it presently exists or as it existed previously. You support reforms like a four-day work week and also reasonable social safety nets, fair compensation. But am I wrong in not seeing any of those things happening under the current political situation? 
Yeah, in the current political situation, we're really in bad shape. I mean, our, we have a hyper-individualized social contract in the United States. Everything is means-tested. Means there is no universality, as opposed to other countries where things like parental leave, worker training, and other such things are much more universal and therefore much more broadly accepted. Uh, in the United States, if you look at what's happening even right now in Washington, we've taken the idea of, of um, the safety net and made it very highly partisan and made it extremely difficult to make forward progress on this. So all of these ideas of mine, the stories that I tell in the book, part of what I'm trying to do is educate Americans about some of what is happening around the rest of the world. It's actually working quite well. A lot of what, a, a lot of what is aspirational here is happening elsewhere. And we may not be, they may not be producing as many billionaires, but the benefits of their, of their economy are much more broadly shared. So does it matter which one of the political parties is uh, controlling Congress? Because well, during yeah. the Obama administration, it was largely the Republicans. Now the Democrats kind of have a majority. Right. No, the problem right now is that we don't, there isn't a, gover there isn't a governing majority. And when the Republicans had a governing majority, what they did is they massively cut taxes. They massively cut corporate taxes and they cut individual taxes for the wealthiest Americans. And let me, let me just be, you know, very blunt and maybe even undiplomatic here. I've gone from working as a midnight janitor and as a sixth grade teacher to, I now live and work in the world of capital. Um, I was a beneficiary of Donald Trump's uh, tax cuts and of the Republican Congress's tax cuts. And so I've seen it from the perspective of a, of a midnight janitor in West Virginia. And now I see it from the perspective of someone who lives and works in the world of capital. And what I see is that under Republicans, part of what they've done is they've created a sort of heads I win, tails you lose economic system. And then Democrats have been insufficiently forceful or insufficiently powerful to really advance an alternative agenda. Republicans have been much, much, much better at driving their agendas when they hold the presidency than Democrats. Going back, the last time Democrats did a better job than Republicans in this, you have to go back to the 1960s. You have mentioned that you're a board partner at Amplo, a global venture capital firm, but doesn't that make you part of the problem? I don't know if it makes, I think the system I work in uh, is part of the problem. The fact that when I make money as a function of capital gains, it is taxed at a lower rate than labor is absolutely part of the problem. There's no question about that. Um, when I wrote this book, The Raging 2020s, if I had to guess, I bet the percentage of my income that I paid in federal taxes was probably lower than the researchers who worked for me. Hmm. So the system is the problem. And part of my writing this book, which is a little different, is it's not somebody who's like screeching and screaming and saying, you know, we have to end capitalism. And everybody, everybody who is out there and making a lot of money is a horrible person. What I'm saying is from the inside, again, from the perspective, though, of having been a midnight janitor, is this system that I now live and work in 
fundamentally means that heads I win, tails you lose. So I've seen, I've seen it from both perspectives. I don't think the work of venture capitalists is the problem. I mean, part of why America is the most innovative country in the world, despite having only 4% of its population, is because we have venture capitalists and we have lots of entrepreneurs. But I think that the venture capitalists like me and the entrepreneurs, the people who start companies like you know, Google and Netflix and the rest, ought to pay their taxes. And gosh darn it, we ought to pay more taxes than the people who work for us. Haven't you seen it from more than two sides? Because you also were in government. Oh, yeah. So the, if you think about the, the subtitle of the book, um, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for the Future. I mean, this really involves all of us. Government, at the end of the day, plays an indispensable role because it has to change the laws, right? You know, there have been a couple times in recent years where a single barista at Starbucks, some 16-year-old making minimum wage, has paid more in federal taxes than Starbucks. <laughs> a single FedEx driver, Leonard, one FedEx driver, on, in several of the past years, over the past five years, has paid more in federal taxes than FedEx. That problem can only be solved by government. FedEx is not breaking the law. Starbucks is not breaking the law. What's inherently unjust here is the law. So the law needs to be changed. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Alec Ross, whose latest book is The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. It's published by Henry Holt. You say that as the market consolidates under fewer and larger companies, it's increasingly in the interest of private companies to behave like nations. How does that I work? Like, yeah, I feel like, I mean, I don't know about you, Leonard, but I feel like in many respects, I feel like we're more governed by companies than we are by countries across a variety of issues. Like think about the minimum wage. The minimum wage hasn't, the federal minimum wage hasn't been raised since 2008. When the, when the federal government doesn't raise the minimum wage, then what it means, when the government doesn't set the minimum wage, it means that Walmart and Amazon do. Uh, think about issues. But wait, I want to. I want to continue on that. Uh, sure. We usually think of that as a uh, a party issue, but Joe Manchin, a Democrat, is one of the people who's opposed to raising the minimum wage to to fifteen dollars an hour. Since That's not. I, a, I've known Joe Manchin since I was a little kid. I know his family. We're both from West Virginia, and he's a Democrat. But he's a Democrat because he was a Democrat back when West Virginia was all Democrats. What he really is, is he is a millionaire coal, coal mine owner. I mean, he is from the world of labor, I mean, of, of capital. Hmm. And West Virginia, above all others, would benefit from an increase in the federal minimum wage. But even though Joe Manchin's from West Virginia, he doesn't, he, in my opinion, um, when he turns his back on lower income folks in the state and and just acts like somebody from the world of capital, he shows his true stripes. I mean, his daughter, Joe Manchin's daughter, few people know this, was the CEO of the pharmaceutical company that um, was in charge of EpiPens when mm. the price of EpiPens went up like 10x and some people died because they were literally hoarding their insulin. 
I've got pretty strong feelings about the senator from West Virginia. Well, the, the, the positions of the parties have changed. After all, the Democrats used to be the party of white supremacy, and now many people see uh, a fair number of Republicans as taking that position. So um, I guess Joe Manchin in another state might have been a Republican. I think so. And it's worth saying at this point, Leonard, I'd love to point out that because I feel like when we start talking about politicians, a lot of the time we lose sight of the big issues here. And so one of the things that I did in this book, The Raging 2020s, the following words don't appear. Obama, Trump, Clinton, Biden, McConnell. Those words were literally banned from the text of the book Mm -hmm. because I feel like I mean, in the same way in which, you know, you bring up Joe Manchin and it sort of it gets my blood up a little. I feel like our conversations become less productive and we have we we aren't. I'll speak for myself. I, I do not engage as openly and productively as soon as something is wrapped into a partisan frame. And so part of what I'm hoping to do with this book, The Raging 2020s, is get people to think about these issues that you and I have been discussing, but taking them out of sort of the politics of the moment. People people can, can can make those connections themselves, but that's why I literally banned the words Trump, Obama, Clinton, and others from the text of the book. In response to market consolidation, haven't private companies stepped in, as we saw when Walmart proved that, as you write, major retailers can use their leverage to force a product off the shelves much faster than the government can when it began pushing eco-friendly products in 2007? And that's Walmart. I've never thought of Walmart as a particularly liberal company. No, this shows, you know, every now and then I try to use examples that surprise people. And so I gave two examples in the book of what happens when a big, powerful company does the right thing. And one example was, as you point out, Walmart. Uh, About 15 years ago, Walmart decided for a variety of different reasons that it would only sell concentrated detergent. Um, The effect of this, it it used all of its market power basically to change the way uh, we create soap products. This has created hundreds of billions of tons of less waste. They basically fundamentally made cleaning products more sustainable across America. Um, Another example I gave is Goldman Sachs. I mean, Goldman Sachs more often than not is thought of as sort of, you know, as as one writer called him, the black vampire squid (laughs) of capitalism, sucking down money and, you know, from anything around it. But what the CEO, the new CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, did is they recognized that as the most powerful investment bank in the United States, one thing they could do to increase diversity on boards of directors is they would say, we won't take a company public if it is all white and all male. Hmm. They, they made this directive really big deal. Um, and then they said, and in year two, if you do not have multiple members of your board of directors who bring diversity, meaning not white and not male, then we won't take you public. And this, I'll speak now from the perspective of of a venture capitalist. This fundamentally changed the conversations in boardrooms and and with executives in companies that wanted to go public. 
because Goldman Sachs used its power to say, you know what, we're going to unilaterally diversify boardrooms. And well, so why not just go to a, com a competitor of Goldman Sachs? You can, but then you don't get Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, similarly, if you're Procter and Gamble and you want to sell Tide detergent and you don't want to change your, your detergent, you can say, forget it, Walmart. We aren't sending you Tide anymore. But Walmart is so big and so powerful, they can get what they want. Goldman Sachs is so big and so powerful. They're like, you know what? If you want to have an all white guy board, that's fine. You can go to another investment bank. But then you're not going public with Goldman Sachs. So they aren't. They aren't monopolies. Walmart isn't a monopoly. Goldman Sachs isn't a monopoly, but they're awfully powerful. You wrote this book before the Pandora Report was made public, but you discuss how tax havens and the competition between countries have allowed multinational companies, especially the big tech companies, to avoid paying taxes in any of the many jurisdictions in which they operate. I mean, this is, look, it is an an incredibly boring topic, but incredibly important. And so I do my best to make it as entertaining as possible. But I'll tell you what, Leonard, all of us, just I bet 99% of the people who are listening to us right now would pay less in taxes if big multinational corporations and the world's wealthiest people all paid the ta paid taxes at the tax level that, that um, is reasonable. Tax havens right now in the UK, also in the United States, with Delaware Corps um, and the and the Pandora Papers revealed the degree to which South Dakota had become a remarkable tax haven. When the world's richest people aren't paying taxes, and when a FedEx driver is paying more in taxes than FedEx, because in part because of how FedEx is able to incorporate itself in different Caribbean islands around the world, then you've got something that fundamentally doesn't work. And so I do think that, uh, you know, look, I've been a little, bit of, a little bit tough on the Biden administration, but one thing that they have done, which is gaining a lot of momentum, which is incredibly important, is proposing a global minimum tax. And it's just 15%, but 15% is more than zero. So a lot of these tax haven countries, um, under pressure from the United States and much of the rest of the world, are acceding. They're saying, all right, we will have a 15% tax. And this is a big this is a big difference. This will mean hundreds of billions of dollars going to governments that otherwise would not. And it means that governments um, can take less money from people in the middle class. But what about those countries? Uh, are they breaking the social contract is, or have they been breaking it as well because they haven't been imposing those taxes? You know, I'll say yes and no. I think there's some cases where it's been malignant and some cases where it hasn't. So I'll give a case where I think it mostly hasn't. Ireland. Um, Ireland in the 1980s and in the into the 1990s had what, what could be described as a, a beer and biscuits economy. Um, you know, it was not a very dynamic economy. And part of what was done to stimulate the Irish economy was they created the lowest taxes uh, in Europe. This then saw a flood of multinational corporations, including pharmaceutical companies and tech companies. So Facebook, Google, Apple, all have their European headquarters in Ireland, flood, into the, uh, flood onto the island. Now, what this did is it helped build the real economy of Ireland, and 
it's, I would say, a less malignant case of tax havening than others because they actually employed people. They built buildings. They based their operations there. In other cases, though, it is malignant. So if you think, for example, and in my book, The Raging 2020s, I give an example of if you click on a Google ad, um, you know, what are the taxes paid on the profits that that uh, what are the taxes paid on the profits that Google pays? And it ends up being less than one percent, seven tenths of one percent. And it's because, you know, and, and I describe how in the book, ultimately, the arm of Google that benefits from that clicked ad is incorporated in Bermuda with a 0% corporate tax. And it's actually, it's a PO box 666 with zero employees inside the building. That's an example of just a ridiculous and a malignant tax haven. So there's a difference, I think, between the Bermuda model and the Ireland model. But I do think it's to the credit of the Irelands uh, that they, too, have all now agreed to this 15 percent global minimum tax. Well, you've uh, written about this as the double Irish with a, a Dutch sandwich technique. But uh, we'll come back to that in just a moment. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His latest book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, published by Henry Holt. Okay, so... What is the double Irish with a Dutch sandwich technique? Uh, you mentioned Google sending its global earnings to, to Bermuda. Uh, Apple's tax maneuvering increased Ireland's GDP by 26% in one year, didn't it? That's right. No, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So here's an example. I'll, just, I'll put this in the simplest possible terms. One of the ways in which Google, Apple, and others uh, have avoided paying global taxes is they create all of these separate little companies. And let's say, for example, let's talk, let's say it's a Google ad. And you click on a Google ad, you probably think that, you know, clicking on a Google ad is the same thing in one country as it is in another. But in fact, it's routed through the the money that flows through their global ad system flows through a group of different shell companies, uh, which basically enable that money, even if you're in Brooklyn and you buy something online in Bronx, in the Bronx, that money will run through about four or five different countries, uh, which is why it's, wow. one, is called, one is called the double Irish with the Dutch sandwich. And in one example, uh, one arm of Google is leasing the technology to enable, to enable its ad technology in another for $30 billion. So literally, the left hand is charging the right hand a fee, and therefore the 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 right hand theoretically is making zero money, while the left hand is growing richer. The left hand is in Bermuda, the right hand is in Brooklyn. This is how they get away with paying no taxes. Don't tax havens hurt the ability of governments to provide for their citizens? They do. For every dollar that isn't collected by government, 
that's a dollar that isn't available for schools, for roads, uh, for other government services. And the real tragedy here, Leonard, is what it means is that the middle class and the working class ends up paying for everybody. Um, the middle class ends up paying for all of these large multinational companies and richest people who have the accountants, the lawyers, and the sophistication uh, to be able to use tax havens. They also have to pay for lower income people and all of the services and all of the supports we know that they need. So the middle class ends up paying for everybody. Mm. Um, and this is why when, you, when middle class people see the bite of taxes that the government takes, they can very reasonably get angry. But a lot of the time they get angry because they think a lot of the benefit is going to lower income people. Um, maybe a lot of the benefits of our taxes are going to try to help low income people. But the real culprit here, when you look at the math, is that the middle class is paying for the taxes that ought to be paid by everybody that's richer than them. The middle class don't have the lawyers, they don't have the accountants, they don't have the ability to incorporate in Bermuda and have bank accounts in Luxembourg. And again, from, you know, from a midnight janitor to a global venture cap capitalist, I've been, I've worked for minimum wage, but I've also now seen how these, how these global capital flows work. And it's really, it, it'll make your head spin. Why do libertarians like tax havens? Libertarians like tax havens because libertarians uh, don't believe in taxes. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's They don't believe in taxes? How do we pay for things? That's, this, is, this is what I say to libertarians. You know, libertarians tend to be one of two things, Leonard. They tend to be very young and therefore very naive. Very young, meaning they've never needed help for anything. Um, they've never sent a, a kid to a public school. They've never had to go to a public hospital. Uh, they've never thought that the roads that they drive on were built by somebody who had to pay for them. Or they tend to be very rich. So there's a, you know, a sort of Silicon Valley class of libertarian who hate paying taxes more than anything else and who believe that the private sector business can do all of those things that government does much better. And so libertarian, and, and oh, by the way, libertarians aren't going to fight Nazis. Libertarians aren't going to build soup kitchens. Libertarian, the libertarian ideology fundamentally is selfish at its core because it means, it, it means government doesn't have the resources to respond to disasters, to provide free public education, to build roads. It is an incredibly selfish and naive ideology. But you say governments could stop much of uh, what we've been talking about if they wanted to. So why don't they? I can't imagine that there are a lot of libertarians running these the United States and other countries. Yeah, I mean, part of it, it's been a race to the bottom. So you get companies trying to attract foreign capital, trying to attract businesses. So if you think about Ireland, that wanted to evolve past having a, a beer and biscuits economy, it lowered its taxes to the point where uh, the New York Times now calls it a tax haven. It lowered its taxes so that Facebook and Google and Apple and others would build their factories and would build their workforces in Ireland 
and Ireland benefited from it. Um, so those countries that are tax havens benefit from it, but it's a race to the bottom. You know, when it's a game of limbo, how low can you go? What that means is that there's sort of a broad set of stakeholders that lose. So maybe a few million people are, are better off, but tens or hundreds of millions of people are worse off. So the idea of changing tax havens means that you have to get countries like the UK, like Ireland, and oh, by the way, the United States with our Delaware Corps and our South Dakota Corps mm. to change behavior. Hasn't Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen been dealing with this as a priority of the Biden administration? If you ask me what the single biggest success of the Biden administration is so far, I would say it's this. Janet Yellen has proven to be one heck of a secretary of Treasury. And what she's done, uh, you know, she's only been the secretary of the Treasury, I think, since January or February. She has gotten 130 of the 196 countries on planet Earth to agree to this global minimum tax. And most of the rest are less important, frankly. She's gotten most of the big countries uh, behind this. And this, if this happens, if they're able to push this through, it is going to have a material impact on the amount of taxes that government collects and what it ought to mean, what it hopefully can and should mean is that the middle class ultimately ends up paying less because the multinationals and the 1% are paying more. How is this working in some of the thriving countries, the Scandinavian countries, Denmark? Uh, they, are, they collect taxes, don't they? They're, they have a whole different system. Why hasn't that become an ideal? So they have a very different system than ours. And, part, and let me explain it for a moment, and then let me say why I think the United States is not Denmark, so to speak. Uh, in these northern European countries, which are thriving, um, you know, the Nordic countries have a higher percentage of billionaires on a per capita basis than the United States does. They're thriving economically. But part of what they do is they actually have fairly high taxes in place. And the high taxes they have in place enables for a, a, a really healthy uh, safety net. So, you know, if you have a baby, you have a, you know, both mom and dad can get a year of maternal or, or parental leave. Um, the reason why we haven't done this in the United States are two reasons. Number one, we Americans are much more individualistic. And those Northern Europeans are much more collectivist. So Americans would tend to rather optimize for themselves and have a little bit more freedom, whereas a lot of these Europeans would rather pay a little bit more and pay into the collective, even if it means a little bit less freedom, a little bit less mobility. The second reason is because in the Northern European countries, these are fairly homogenous societies, same religion, same race, um, you know, most of the population is, is well-educated. In the United States, it's much more difficult to have these sorts of universal benefits in a very diverse population. Uh, because frankly, the, the segments of the population that might uh, be stronger consumers of these benefits 
will tend to be new Americans or will tend to be uh, for, from racial or ethnic minorities that are historically economically disadvantaged. This then creates tensions across racial and ethnic lines that simply don't exist in a lot of these Central and Northern European states. What about the ability of the IRS to collect money to under existing laws? Is that being addressed in the legislation that's become stalled in Congress? It, so it's it, that's such an important question, Leonard. So Donald Trump hated the IRS. I mean, this is no success. This is this is that's because he was being audited for 20 years. <laughs> that's right. I mean, so Donald Trump waged war on the IRS, um, took away a lot of its authority, cut a lot of its budget. And so what it means now is that the IRS is substantially smaller and has substantially fewer capabilities than it once did. And interestingly, and so it, just let me add this, the, the, the head of the IRS was appointed by Donald Trump and he remains under Joe Biden. No, that's, you're, Leonard, I'm glad you pointed that out. That's absolutely true. So we've got the, the IRS actually has an important function to play. Now, most of us, as soon as you say, put those three letters together, IRS, people get a little nervous. But if we're being honest, if you work hard and play by the rules, uh, the IRS is not going to give you a hard time. And in fact, they work very hard to ensure that people all pay their fair share. If, however, you sort of break the leg of the institution, then the wealthiest individuals and the wealthiest corporations, which are able to employ the accountants and the lawyers, are going to be able to get away with not paying as much in taxes. But for those of us who are, but but for those of us who go to H and R Block, who have one employer, um, who do not have armies of accountants or lawyers working for us, we end up will be will end up paying those taxes, uh, which the wealthiest multinationals and individuals do not. This is Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Alec Ross, whose latest book is The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, published by Henry Holt. You oppose stock buybacks because, you write, a buyback is as productive to society as a bonfire of banknotes, and the money just disappears without noting that buybacks enable corporate executives to engorge their personal fortunes at will, another route to widening inequality. I think that, that stock buybacks, and for those of you who don't know, what a stock buyback is, is when a company uses its money to buy stock in itself. Mm -hmm. Now, when you buy stock in yourself, what are you doing? You're reducing the supply. You're reducing the amount of shares that are available on the market. To me. And therefore, that, that's right. And it pushes the price up. What this enables is what I call corporate socialism. So let's talk, let's talk about um, the airlines for a second. When the airlines, the major American airlines spent $47 billion of their $49 billion in profits uh, on stock buybacks. Wow. When, yeah, 47 out of 49 billion, that only left them $2 billion left. So what happens when COVID hits? When COVID hits, they want a bailout. Did they get it? They sure did. What that means though, is that the benefits, the, again, 
the increase in share price because of the $47 billion of buybacks, the, the, the benefits are privatized while the costs, the cost of the, bail, of the bailouts are socialized. So for me, this isn't even really capitalism. Boeing, Boeing again, I believe it was $43 billion out of its $58 billion in profits over 10 years went for stock buybacks. That is money that they did not spend on building safer planes. Boeing, once COVID hit, needed a bailout. Could it tap those $58 billion? No, because it spent $43 billion buying its own stock to increase the stock price so that the shareholders would benefit. Who pays? Who pays at the middle class? Those are the people who pay the taxes that enable the bailouts. This is not capitalism. This is corporate socialism, where we privatize the gains and socialize the costs. And you write that uh, if this level of inequality in the United States had stayed at a constant level over the last 40 years, uh, it would have meant that $50 trillion would have gone to workers earning below the 90th percentile. That's an additional $1,100 every single month for every single worker. So if we were moving in that direction, how did we... What happened? I think it was a cultural shift. Um, if you go back, you think about the movie Wall Street. Uh, when Oliver Stone uh, wrote that movie and the Michael Douglas figure, Gordon Gecko, said greed is good. Mm. And Gor- he wanted Gordon Gecko to be the bad guy in the movie. But in fact, he ended up being sort of a hero, right? The Gordon Gecko figure ended up becoming iconic. And, th- into, and this took place in the late 80s and then into the 90s and into the beginning of the 21st century. We Americans, when we embraced this idea of shareholder capitalism, um, we unleashed the more Mad Max-like effects of capitalism. So going back to the statistics that you just cited, Leonard, uh, imagine $1,100 per month per worker. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I bet those it. are you, I mean, you could do a lot with that, right? Hmm. Yes. Well, I work for a, uh, a, uh, an entity that is struggling, struggling financially, so I can't imagine that they're going to offer me a raise at, at, the, car, at the moment. <laughs> And that, and that is because you are not part of a global conglomerate no. where you're a shareholder. You are, you're an employee. I, and this I'm, is I'm the wishing case that we were part of the Pentagon because the Pentagon <laughs> always gets funded no matter what. You know what? That is, the most, that is the one place in government that is never going to have to worry about getting shut down. Yeah. So... Even though uh, people talk, the, uh, the many people in Congress are talking about not wanting to increase the debt, they don't seem to uh, be concerned about how much money goes to the Pentagon. It's a very strange uh, and, thing. And, and, and despite the fact that there's an awful lot of bad stuff that we've learned about recently. I'm in violent agreement with you. I mean, let's think about Afghanistan for a moment. Mm-hmm. Without, without, um, without condoning the way in which we left the country. One of the things that we can look back on is over the course of 20 years, we spent $1 trillion in Afghanistan. 
We spent $1 trillion in Afghanistan over the course of 20 years. And once we left, it went back to exactly what it was before we went there with the Taliban. $1 trillion, over 95% of which was military spending. What do we have to show for it? Just about nothing. So I do think that it's time for us to be, begin to scrutinize uh, our military budget. The fact that we have over the past two decades, and this has been a big problem, put trillions of dollars into conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere at the expense of making investments here at home that are enormously needed has exerted a cost. And if you look at the discretionary budget, meaning the, the, the dollars that the Congress decides to spend, there's the military budget, and it is so, 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 so much bigger than everything else. And I'm not saying we don't need a military. We do. But I do believe that since we've disciplined other departments like housing and transportation and other such things, I'd like to see if we could at least freeze the military budget, especially as we leave conflicts like that in Afghanistan. And uh, in another uh situation, uh, something that uh, actually relates to your home state of West Virginia. Haven't the populations of some states shrunk dramatic, dramatically as rural jobs have disappeared? What's happening you know, there, and, and what, how does that fit into what we're discussing here? Yeah, no, look, I'm so glad you mentioned this. This goes to the core of the word rage in the title of the book, The Raging 2020s. You say, when you I was, warned that if nothing changes, rage will be the defining quality of the 2020s. That's exactly right. So let's talk about West Virginia, where I'm from. So when I was born, West Virginia had about two, had a population of about 2 million. Today, it has a population of about 1.7 million. Hmm. The people that left were all people like me, people who got college degrees, who wanted to find opportunity. Uh, but because in West Virginia, but also the West Virginias, that exist in probably 30 or 40 states around the country, what we saw was a hollowing out um, of rural America. And what was left behind was a lot of anger. So the, the highest level of support for Donald Trump is in communities like these. He is beloved in West Virginia. So what's left is a stagnated, emasculated, angry, uh, aging population that is radicalizing politically as they watch Fox News, as they read whatever insane things they read on Facebook. And so part of why America is raging in a way now that it wasn't decades ago is because of what's happening in some of these rural communities. And this ties back to an earlier part of our discussion, Leonard, where we were talking about the move from stakeholder to capitalism to shareholder capitalism, because all the businesses moved out of the middle America of, a mid of middle America and moved to where they didn't have to pay taxes, moved to the tax havens, or you know, in other cases, automated the labor. Alas, we have run out of time, but I want to thank you very much for a really fascinating conversation. I've really appreciated it. Um, Alec Ross, 
his latest book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, published by Henry Holt. Uh, he's one of the world's leading experts on innovation, and his other book, include the New York Times bestseller, The Industries of the Future. He's currently Distinguished Visiting Professor at the University of Bologna Business School and a board partner at Amplo, a global venture capitalist firm. And during the Obama administration, he served as senior advisor for innovation to the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, to help modernize the practice of diplomacy and advance America's foreign policy interests. He's also served as the convener for the Technology and Media Policy Committee on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and on the Obama-Biden presidential transition team. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Leonard. It's been a great conversation. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Reggie Johnson, our live engineer, and to, Le- to Leonard Lopez at Large Executive Producer Jesse Lynn for all of the work that they do throughout the week. Uh, if you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our archive at WBAI.org and on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. You can also find links to our past shows at LeonardLopezAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep this historic station on the air. It's the only one on the New York radio dial that's supported 100% by its listeners. So why not make that call right now to ensure that this show and the station that brings it to you will be here in the years to come? And one great way to show your support for what we do on Leonard Lopate at Large is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, because BAI I buddies provide the station with a steady, stable source of support, something we need now more than ever. But however you choose to show your support, what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this free speech alternative to corporate radio alive and well in New York City through their generosity. Um, now, uh, again, the number to call to make your tax-deductible contributions, 212-209-2950. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And, and thank you so much. We're off for the next few days, but I hope you can join us again next Thursday when Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin will discuss her new book, Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend.